You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Here, um, I'm excited about today when Ron was uh, looking over the the whole book of Luke. He was looking at who could do what, dividing up the chapters, and he said, I'm giving you this story of Caesarea Philippi because he knows it's near and dear to my heart, and I'm going to share about that today, and you'll know why. And I believe that this is a word that will be near and dear to your heart as well. Um, so he gave me the chapter um, after the feeding of 5,000. So it's Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, but it goes all the way to 62. And so I was like looking at this chapter, and it's like, how am I going to do this? Holy cow, this is Caesarea Philippi. Then you have the transfiguration on the mountain, and then you go down into the valley, and there's the father with the demon-possessed son. And then you have people marveling because of Jesus' miracles. And then the next minute, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest, and then you end with the cost of following Jesus. And I thought, how am I going to do that in 30 minutes? How do you do that in 30 minutes? Because for one thing, I love Caesarea Philippi. I could stay there. And so I said, I feel like I need at least two weeks. And he goes, do you really want two weeks? And I said, okay. And so I'm going to be back next week, and we're going to finish chapter 9 of Luke. But, but I want to take us back last week, because it's very important that you see the contrast of what's happening in Luke chapter 9. So last week, he, um, Jesus was in Bethesda. He was um, with the crowd of 5,000 men, so there could have been upwards of 20,000 people there. And he was welcoming them um, because they were followers. Now, some of them were fans, but many, but they knew who Jesus was, and they were following him, and they wanted to hear what he had to say, and he was teaching about the kingdom of God. And I know when we say the kingdom of God, it's like, what does that actually mean? What is the kingdom of God? And basically, it's what is in us. And we don't get there just by osmosis. We get there in two ways, uh, primarily. I'm going to tell you right up front how to get to live in the kingdom of God. One, you need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to show you, guide you, direct you, give you understanding of the word of God. And the other part of living in the kingdom of God is being in his word. Because over and over in the New Testament, and especially in the Gospels, Jesus says the kingdom is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. So the kingdom of God basically means that God reigns supreme in your life. That Jesus is king. And that God's authority is recognized and obeyed. And I'm going to say this right up front. I mean, none of us are there. We are all in progress. We make mistakes we goof up. We don't do what we need to do. We're not disciplined at times. Okay, maybe I'm speaking of myself. But 
we are in progress, and it's okay as long as we keep leaning forward. Keep asking, Holy Spirit, you have permission to speak into my life. You have permission to work in my life. Would you show me, help me understand the word of God? It's so important. And so I want to go back. So he was in Bethesda. He was teaching. He was teaching about the kingdom of God. Some were fans. Some were, a lot of them were followers. He was healing the sick. He was doing miracles. And he was feeding them. And certainly that would draw a crowd. So this was, this was kind of like a big church picnic. And so because people were there, they knew who he was. And the boy with the fish and the bread and Jesus were pretty much the providers of the big potluck. So this is so you have to understand this is where Jesus was right before Caesarea Philippi. Now Caesarea Philippi couldn't be more different. Caesarea Philippi um, is one of my favorite places to visit when I'm in Israel, if it's not the most favorite place. I love this place. I've been there seven different times. Every single time, it's significant. The, the Lord speaks to me. I, I really love this place. And I think I... Good, there's a map there. So you can see where Bethesda was. He went all the way up to Caesarea Philippi. And so this place is super fertile ground. It's beautiful. It is, um, in, it's the most fertile place in the Middle East. It's in what the region is called Hula Valley. And it's agricultural, so you have fruits and vegetables and farms, and it's just lush and it's beautiful, and there's an abundance of fresh water. And it's right on the foothills of Mount Hermon. And the water there is the most beautiful, life-giving water. And I know it's so hard to describe this water because I've never seen water like this. And it's just life-giving. It's beautiful, and it's fresh, and it's one of the um, main drinking sources in Israel. But the water is even described in the Psalms when it talks about unity and harmony. And I'm saying this because you got to get a picture of this water because obviously the psalmist saw the water as refreshing. He says it's like the unity and harmony is like the dew of Mount Hermon. So the water there is just beautiful. The Hula Valley is a major stopover for birds migrating along the Syrian-African Rift Valley. So it goes between, um, they come from Africa, Europe, Asia, on the way. It's a stopping ground for all these birds, tens of thousands of birds, 200 different species, including cranes and storks and um, egrets and cormorants and, and pelicans. And I'm speaking Ron's love language. I don't know if you know this, but he's a birder, and he loves, to, he loves birds. He knows all about birds. Ornithology is one of his hobbies. And so it's this place that just is abundant with all these beautiful birds. And it's in this place, this beautiful Hula Valley, where this pagan temple is built. And this is where the question Jesus asked the question 
here? It's a crucial question. It's a critical question. And then there's the confession of Peter and then the commission that Jesus makes to his disciples, and it's powerful. So I want to read out of Luke 9, 18 through 20. One day, Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah. Others say, um, Others say, You are one of the other ancient prophets risen from the dead. Then he asked them, He asked his disciples, But who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah sent from God. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read that passage again out of Matthew because Matthew gives more of a description of what was happening. So Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. That's the Holy Spirit's working, by the way. That's how the Holy Spirit speaks to us and shows us and reveals things to us. Now I say to you, Jesus says, I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. I have some pictures of Caesarea Philippi, and um, this one is what it originally looked um, like when it was built all those centuries ago. And you can see it's right on a cliff where the water would run down, and I'm going to explain that. So that's what originally it looks like. When we visited, I want to show you, so you have this water that's just magnificent, and see that cave, that's where the temple was built into, and then in that area, you have niches and places where um, idols were put, and platforms, and you can see where the ruins were, and um, so this is where Caesarea Philippi, and this is what it looks like. And it's a place where Jesus first asks his his disciples, who do you say that I am? Why did Jesus leave the Galilee region where he did 70% of his ministry and all of his teaching in that area and walk 60 miles to Caesarea Philippi to ask the question? Jesus deliberately sets himself against this background of idol worship where People are lost, and they're confused. When I've been to this site, it's one, like I said, it's one of my favorites because I get it. I get it. There's something that I'm going to share with you this morning, and it's, to me, it's powerful. I'm in awe of Jesus choosing this place far from Galilee. People are not seeking him. They're not following him. It's not a big church picnic. Don't get me wrong. I would rather be in Galilee. Galilee is beautiful as well. Quiet, serene. I would rather be in Galilee sitting at Jesus' feet and being fed by Jesus. But it's here he asks the question. 
that all of us have to answer. Who do you say that I am? The people who came to this pagan temple believed that the cave that the temple was built in created a gate to the underworld where fertility gods lived during the winter. Winter. They were, they were doing detestable acts of worship to these false gods. The location in Caesarea Philippi, as you saw, was the foothills of Mount Hermon, and it stood at the base of the cliff where the spring water would flow into. And I want to bring back that picture of the cave because actually the temple was built right into the cave, and so the cave and the spring water at Caesarea Philippi created a gate that they believed to the underworld. This is how the enemy works. Smoke and mirrors. It's all smoke and mirrors. They believed that their city was literally the gates of hell. So, for instance, they would enter the temple, and the back wall, which was the back of the cave, was opened, um, and the water was running into it, and it was pitch black, and they were told and made to believe that it was the abyss. The people would bring their sacrifice in, and they would come to the abyss, and hoping and praying that the god upon or pan would accept it. And if, if the god upon found it acceptable, it would be carried away. If the sacrifice whirled around in the water, woe to you. Your sacrifice was unacceptable. Thus, the word panic comes from this place, from the God of Pan. Would God accept me or reject me? Would I succeed or would I fail? Does he hear me or not? Panic was palatable in this place. Would I or would I not be accepted by God? When Jesus brought his disciples here, They must have been shocked because Caesarea Philippi was like a red-light district and good, devout Jews would never go here. It was literally a city of people eagerly knocking on the gates of hell. And it's here that Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And then he asks them, who do you say that I am? Knowing who Jesus is and knowing Jesus is different. Jesus presented a clear challenge with the words at Caesarea Philippi. He didn't want his followers hiding from evil, running away, but he wanted them to storm the gates of hell, standing in the middle of what could have been chaotic. Near the pagan temple, Jesus asked the question, Who Do you say that I am? And Peter boldly replies, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I don't want to give the enemy any credit. I really don't. The enemy cashes in on vulnerability. He distracts. And he makes us believe things that aren't really true. So this is so significant because every time I encounter a situation that appears hopeless or even terrifying, beyond help, 
whether it's with my kids, whether it's in marriage, whether it's with ministry, whether it's with finances, whether it's with health, whatever it is. Or how about when we encounter a pandemic or upheaval in the country, injustices and heartache? It's all smoke and mirrors that the enemy is throwing at us, conspiracies and many prophetic words that never came through, through or t- were true. The question needs to be answered. Who do you say that I am? You need to know it. Definitively, unquestionably, you need to know it. Because we face chaos, fear, doubt, discouragement all the time. We get angry, hurt, desperate, distracted, And there are times that we're going to be in the minority. We will be marginalized. Like Ron said, some of us feel very marginalized and disenfranchised during this season. And sometimes we're even mesmerized by the gates of hell. And when we are faced with any or all of those things, we have to answer the question, who do you say that I am? And we have to know you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And when I get to that place, I can also reply, you are a God who cares. You are a a redeeming God. You are a God who accepts my sacrifices. You are a God who brings hope. You're my strong tower. You are loving and unfailing. You are a God who forgives me. You are a merciful God. You are a God who knows the enemy's tricks. You are for me, and you are not against me. And you can add to that list. I was going through a journal that I had written when I was in Israel or coming back from Israel, and I have pages of who God is. In Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then it goes on, and it says, Jesus replied, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now you have to picture this. You saw the pictures of where they were in Caesarea Philippi. And he's telling this great big rock, and the temple is built into the rock. And he's saying, Peter, which means rock, upon this rock, and I'm, you know, I can just picture Jesus putting his hand on it or pointing to it. And he says, on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And all the powers of hell will not conquer it. He chose his words carefully, intentionally. We were there one time, and when we were visiting this site, there were some students who were standing back, apprehensive and guarded, and clearly looking uncomfortable at being at a pagan temple. And I get it. I mean, you don't want to play around with the enemy. But I approached them because they weren't really appreciating (laughs) Caesarea Philippi like I was appreciating it. And I asked them, what's going on? Why are you uncomfortable? 
And the reply was, well, we just don't like being here. It's creepy. It's, you know. And I said, that's the very thing that Jesus came to address. We have the keys, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Not only do we declare who he is, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, but we also stand and believe and declare the power that he has and the authority that he gives us, the church. We have the keys. Jesus said, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Don't be confused. He's not saying um, that he's giving other people the keys of the kingdom. He's saying to the church, which is you and me. He's giving the church the keys to the kingdom. Only the church, only you and I, his disciples, his followers, have the keys to the kingdom. Not science, not the government, not the right, not the left. He's a consummate independent. Listen to this conversation that Joshua has in Joshua chapter 5. When Joshua was near, was near the town of Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and demanded, Are you a friend or foe? Neither one, he replied. I am the commander of the Lord's army. I didn't come to take sides. I came to take over. At this, Joshua fell with his face to the ground in reverence. I am at your command, Joshua said. What do you want your servant to do? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did as he was told. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You didn't come to take sides. You came to take over. And he gives us the keys. Now, keys give us access. And you know how frustrating it is when you misplace your keys. Because you can't do anything. You can't drive. You can't get into your office. You can't get in, you know, go anywhere. So keys give us access. And he's talking to the church. Again, it's you and me. He's talking to his disciples. And he says, I give you the keys and there are multiple keys. He didn't say, I'm giving you a key. He says, I'm giving you the keys. Multiple keys because there are gates. Multiple gates. I am giving you authorized keys of the kingdom. And whatever I bind in heaven, I bind on earth. And the gates of hell will not prevail. He was commissioning them to a huge task in the face of evil, build my church. And Jesus is doing this in the very place that was filled with immorality and corruption. It was a clear challenge with his words at Caesarea Philippi. He didn't want his followers to be hiding from evil, not to be afraid. Early... Probably, I mean, it was a year ago that everything kind of shut down. It was shortly after that, in 2020, Ron and I looked at each other and we said, okay, all right, let's just say everything we're hearing on the media, on Facebook, on the news, whatever, 
what people are saying, let's just say it's all true. All the, all the controversies, all the crazy rumors. And then we said, how will it change who Jesus is? Not one iota. And how will it keep him from seeing us through? It won't. And he doesn't want us to be stopped or ashamed by our past or our story. Jesus said, I will build my church and I'm using you. As followers, we cannot successfully use the keys of his kingdom when we're embarrassed, afraid, or arrogant. The job of the church is to reach high while we have our feet firmly planted on the ground. The minute we replace Jesus with anything, whether it's good deeds or passionate causes or whatever, we lose our way. Jesus is the center of the church, nothing else. As a Christian, I have been given the keys to his whole kingdom. That means I'm not afraid to go there. I'm not afraid to go there. I'm not going to be arrogant. I'm not going to go places that I don't need to go, but I'm not afraid to go when evil confronts us. Or when I don't understand something. I have the keys to the whole kingdom. I, care, I can care about the children at the border and the unborn. I can preach about God's call to sexual holiness and love the sexually broken. Be a disciple of Jesus Christ and no one else. Because God's kingdom confronts all of us. I believe Jesus is the only way to God. I believe the Holy Spirit is alive and does stuff in real time and in real ways. I'm traditional, I'm conservative in my theology, and I hold these convictions close. It is my understanding of God's kingdom that invites me to listen to those I hold differences with. And I don't need to be afraid. Or I don't need to be defensive. I humbly hold the keys of the kingdom, and the gates of hell will not prevail. God's kingdom graciously gives everyone a path to holiness. He paid the ultimate price. It was right after his time in Caesarea Philippi that now he's telling his disciples in verse 21, he says, it says, Jesus warned his disciples first not to tell anyone who he was, which is, you might wonder why. Why would he do that? I mean, he's the Messiah, the son of the living God. It's because at this point, and these people, they wanted him to wear a crown, but he knew he had to bear the cross. The Son of Man, it says in verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things, he said. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day he will be raised from the dead. Then he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower... You must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. I don't know about you, but that's a compelling invitation. 
You're gonna, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. How many want to follow me? And <laughs> but Jesus is saying this is a voluntary act of su- surrender. And it's contra- contrary to everything our flesh desires. You volunteer to shoulder your cross. You're laying down your agenda, your rights to follow Jesus. I miss the mark all the time. I have so much room for improvement. But he is so worth leaning into and getting closer to him and knowing him. Jesus, again, Knowing who he is and knowing Jesus, there's a big difference. Jesus died for me. He went to the grave. He confronted hell on my behalf. He rose from the grave, and he invites us to know him. You are the redeemer, my refuge, my healer, my comfort, my advocate, provider. The way to Jesus is simple. It's not easy. But it's simple. He doesn't make it complicated. Following him is not complicated about how many hoops you have to jump through. But it's not easy either. (laughs) It means volunteering to lay down your own fleshly desires to follow him. I'm going to end with this because knowing Jesus is what I'm hoping that everyone would want to do. I'm inviting you with Romans 10, 9. It says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And we can definitively, unquestionably say when we're asked, who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Ah, For your work on the cross, for raising from the dead, for inviting us to be part of your kingdom. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for making a way. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbefoursquare.com.